We need to develop the ability to learn new things quickly. New things might be new content. It might also be new technology. It might be new ways to interact with people who are different from me. But that ability to learn new things quickly and then apply those those skills in a given context is profound. And for us, the having labs and schools has been, I wouldn't say a silver bullet, but a compelling mechanism to start positioning kids to do that. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited because we get to have incredible conversations with innovative folks doing just the cool of the cool um, out in the world of education. And today is no different. Um, Joining us today is Michael Stone, who is with the Public Education Foundation, which is based in Tennessee. And Michael has honestly, quite a really incredible and um, awesome sort of career journey. He um, has been an Albert Einstein Educator Fellow with the National Science Foundation. For those of you that are familiar with that, and even for those of you who have been that, that is a a, a rare privilege um, and an honor uh, to be an Einstein Fellow. Um, He also spent 10 years um, of his career as a high school mathematics and computer science teacher. So he comes with real street cred to this conversation. In his current role, He has led the development of the largest school-based fab lab network in the world through something called the Volkswagen E-Lab. So, Michael, welcome to the program. Hi there. Thank you. You know, Michael, um, just so that we can level set, because our listeners come to us from all over the world, and not not everybody, um, you know, is living in our backyard, so to speak. So let's start first and foremost with a sort of an overview of what is the Public Education Foundation? What is that thing that you you work do your work through? Sure. So the Public Education Foundation is a local nonprofit. Um, we serve public schools in Southeast Tennessee. Um, and a little bit in Northwest Georgia. We provide a range of services that impact students directly, their families. Um, We do a lot of work with like college and career counselors, um, with teachers, both pre-service and in-service teachers, and then a lot of work with um, aspiring leaders and um, building level leaders. I've been around about 35 years now, and uh, I, I was privileged to join about seven years ago. That's awesome. We, you know, as a as as the CEO of a nonprofit, um, I know how incredibly necessary um, the work that the nonprofits do. Um, sort of in the middle of the other sets of institutions that are always um, within our ecosystems, right? And we we hold a very special place within that work because we're we're Switzerland in many cases, right? We're that that nonprofit that can sometimes do things that others cannot, including including, you know. And I know this is something that we have in common. Um, together, the the work that you're doing through the Volkswagen e-labs and the idea of fab labs and the massive global maker sort of initiative and really getting kids engaged in the doing of learning is mm-hmm. super exciting. Paz Foundation also has um, a fab lab and we're super excited about it. And I, I really want to hear more. So let's, let's start. How did the Public Education Foundation and Volkswagen how did you guys find each other? Let's start there, and then we'll dig into what, what it is the work that you're doing. 
Sure. The abbreviated sort of history lesson there. Um, we have a local um, STEM school, STEM school Chattanooga, that mm-hmm. was started during the Race to the Top initiative yeah. back in 2012. I remember that um, very well. They were, yeah, no doubt. They were doing some really compelling work. They were building one grade of the year, just a high school. Uh, they started ninth and tenth, ninth grade. And after the second year, um, the principal there, uh, Dr. Tony Donan, who has a background, his undergraduate degree was in systems engineering. He looked around and noticed that his kids were doing incredible PBL work. They had a lot of business partners. The presentations were incredible, but they never got to take their idea from their head and actually like do it, right? Like test it, work through an iterative process. And he knew, uh, we, we later stumbled into some work from uh, Dr. Gary Steger, who talks about making school a place where deep learning occurs as a natural consequence of rich experience. Uh, Tony knew in, intuitively, instinctively, and from his engineering training, like there's, there's a much deeper opportunity. We're missing some, some rich learning moments because kids are just ending their presentations with you know duct tape and cardboard models and slick slide decks, right? So we didn't know about Fab Labs, but we set up to see like where is a mechanism we could find to do this. Um, the school ended up finding the Fab Foundation and Fab Labs actually visited MC Squared there in Ohio um, and a, a number of schools that were doing some pioneering work at that time with bringing Fab Labs on campus. And for us, it was a solution to a problem. We needed our kids to be able to iterate and, and like take an idea from their head and bring it to reality. And of course, Fab Labs at MIT were, were designed to like be a space where you can make almost anything. So this was a natural marriage. Did that work for a couple of years. I was, I was privileged to get to go and be the teacher that started the lab there. I knew nothing about Fab Labs. Um, I told the principal in my interview that I didn't own a power tool and I paid people to change my oil. I had very little technical prowess. I, I did have a background in software development, so the, 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 the digital side I was more comfortable with, but mechanical side was very foreign to me. But Volkswagen you were willing to learn. Through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the point, right? Yeah, so the, exactly. the principal I'm was really excited about that. Yeah. Bingo. Um, and he, he challenged me. He asked in my interview, he's like, I don't care that you don't know, but are you willing to learn that in front of the kids? And I was like, well, I will if you'll let me. And that became a foundational element. They're like, we really see the lab as a place where students can learn how to learn. Um, that it's not about mastering any one of the technical tools, right? A 3D printer, or laser cutter, or whatever, because the technology is changing so fast. Like that, that we're not sure that the discrete skills are, you know, absolutely the most important thing, but that they can learn to learn, like that they can develop the confidence to go, I've never used that brand of 3D printer, but I think I know how they work well enough. I could figure it out. I'm confident I could go. We feel like that's a transferable skill, a durable skill. Um, that became a, an element of, of what we got, do, got to doing. The other piece was we started to look at um, what we started to call STEM essential skills, uh, like the four C's. And what we discovered with the Fab Lab we were building it was that those four C's, um, th- things like critical thinking, collaboration, communication, creative problem solving. Right? And there's, there's more to build on. Tony Wagner done a ton of research on this. We just didn't know it yet. Um, the, we, we discovered the labs in a school setting, in a formal school setting, um, could be used as a compelling mechanism for students to formally develop those skills. And so that became the model. We didn't know this at the time, but that's what we started building. Well, Volkswagen came along. I had gone on to do the Einstein Fellowship and came back and took a position with the Public Ed Foundation here. This was my introduction to nonprofit work. I was here for three months. Volkswagen toured the labs and uh, CEO called our CEO. Uh, a week later, they were offering us a million dollars to begin scaling the Fab Lab from the STEM school across the region. Uh, that's since turned into about a 12 or $13 million venture. Um, we've now opened over 50 labs across the country with 
36 of them here and, and continuing to grow. But the idea was, was held very tightly that, and this is where, you know, as a local nonprofit, we, we played a, we were positioned nicely to play a critical role. Um, we could help take this idea from the STEM school that was compelling and really having a profound impact, but it was isolated to this highly innovative setting with a very forward thinking principal and staff. Um, so we were able to take that idea from, from there and say, okay, how can we build out mechanisms, structures, and supports to scale from there to regular public schools across a diverse range of um, sort of smaller niche communities in the, in the Southeast Tennessee region? Yeah. And what an incredible opportunity and journey. And I, and I do love the fact that you were willing to say, I have no idea, but I believe... I believe this is going to be good for kids and I'm willing to be a learner with them. And we all know that that is incredibly powerful um, for students to see when the adults in their world admit, hey, I don't know, but we can figure this out together. The learning that happens in that scenario versus I'm going to stand up and just deliver some content, some knowledge I have to you night and day difference. And we all recognize that. So just I wanted to just shout out a a giant bravo for taking that on being personally willing to say, I don't know, but I'm going to learn this. That's that's epically awesome. The one of the things I do want to touch on very quickly, um, because I hear this all the time, there there's a, a lot of folks that don't necessarily understand or appreciate that there is a difference between a fab lab and a makerspace right? They have elements of similarity, but they are different. And I just, before we dive into really sort of the nuts and bolts, if you will, um, or actually the CNC machines and the the, the digital lasers, because <laughs> I have them all here and I'm actually looking out a window at them right now. Um, before we get into to those pieces about the work that you're doing and, and what you're seeing the students sort of game, let, can we talk just a second about sort of your thinking about what makes a fab experience different from a maker experience? Sure. So I'm sort of hearing two questions there. Um, I'll save the experience a little bit for what we what we actually do with kids, because I think the experience piece mm-hmm. is a little bit more philosophical and based in pedagogy yep. um, than it is necessarily in stuff. But part of how we delineate locally around like maker spaces, STEM labs, fab labs, there's mm-hmm. all these vernacular yep. that's thrown around. And we call them Volkswagen e-labs because Volkswagen has been a, a wonderful partner and helped us, you know, name a, a branded space. Right. All of the VW e-labs are certified. They're registered as fab labs um, through the fab foundation. So that for us is a really important element. Mm-hmm. The fab foundation, which spun out of MIT in the late yep. 2000s, um, right? Do- Dr. Neil Gershenfeld started fab lab as he started kind of curating digital technologies to say with access to digital fabrication tools was sort of what's the, what is the collection of tools that people need access to that if they have access to these tools, they could make almost anything. So he started formalizing that on, on the MIT campus. Fab Foundation was created and we've been blessed to work a lot with Dr. Sherry Lassifer. Yeah. She's Lassiter, awesome, by the who, way. Oh, she's, man, she's amazing. <laughs> she's amazing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just pinched myself that we get to you know, call her and talk with her and, and get to work directly with them. But what they've done is created... A, I, I, we see two really... They've done a lot. We've seen two pieces that are super valuable. One is they've created a, a, a flexible but standardized framework from a technical standpoint. What tools do you need to have so that your kids could genuinely take an idea from their head and make it? Right? So being a fab lab, you, you 
you essentially are making sure that you've got the technical capacity to like access to 3D printers, to laser cutters, to CNC machines and milling machines, et cetera. The other side of it, though, is, is not to be discounted. They've built a global network of people, not necessarily educators. In fact, probably most of them aren't formal educators, but they're people who are deeply engaged in the Fab Lab schema with this idea that we can seamlessly share bits and atoms and the two can interact. So, you know, when the pandemic hit, there was a significant effort that spawned out of Czechoslovakia and, and grew across Europe. Within a 72-hour time period, because we were part of that network, we were able to set up, this was spring of 2020, we pulled every 3D printer from every lab we had in our community at the time. We had about 100 3D printers. We put them all in one location. All of our teachers who were teaching remotely at that point anyways um, started volunteering. We produced 7,800 face shields that we were able to give to frontline workers at the hospital. Well, the design for that came through the Fab Lab network. You had designers in Italy and in Czechoslovakia and Germany and Japan collaborating. So they've created this thriving, rich network that allows you to do sort of both things. Make sure there's enough standardization in tools, not necessarily brands, but categories of tools, that when a designer in Italy says, I've got an idea, let's try this, you then are able to, number one, access that network. So there's connectivity, but then also can actually deliver on what they're building and add to and modify. And I think that idea, which was what Dr. Gershenfeld used to talk in the late 90s about personalized fabrication, for us, we're seeing in the formal education space real value in like leveraging the idea of personal fabrication to bend that to really enhance personalized learning. Now, there's some really exciting sort of developments there. Yeah, it is very, very exciting. And I saw the same thing. And, you know, I watched our network of affiliated schools and programs suddenly all engage, right? And we have numerous in our um, regional ecosystem, right, that have either maker spaces or full-on fabrication um, spaces who similar sorts of things, right? They started sharing the designs and they started mass producing. Um, um, here regionally, the thing that they they were producing um, a lot of our um, FRC robotics teams, actually, because they all have that equipment and they're all often, or not all of them, but many of them affiliated or their school has a fabrication um, facility or they have access to one like here at the Pass Foundation or whatever, right? And so so they were producing, um, you know, face masks. Um, and I, right. I, I, off the top of my head, I have no idea how many were distributed, but it was bags and bags and bags of these that were being collected across the different groups. And, and I, I love the network approach of this, this learning through, through, through and from the masses um, and the expertise that this system, this network that MIT has put in place through, through the Fab Foundation makes possible. Just so many amazing things. I do want to talk a little bit, Michael, about the student experience piece now, right? Because we've talked about what the thing is, but, you know, honestly, and I know both you and I have had so many experiences with this, just watching kids in these environments. And, you know, um, to your point, you know, the kids that you saw that were doing their internships, they were producing and these incredible presentations, their ideas are, are amazing. So, so as a as the student experience and as the teacher from the ped, pedagogical sort of standpoint, how is it that you take that opportunity and turning it to meaningful learning that translates back into the 
the educational system, the set of requirements that we all have to live with, right, uh, for better or for worse, right, to get us to point A to point B, whatever that's point B is going to happen to be for us. But but we have obligations, right? We have we have standards, we have courses, we have a state, we have federal. So talk to me about the student experience and opportunity and all of this. Sure. So I think to, to get there, uh, I, I'm going to flip the script a minute and just ask you a question. Sure. Um, I love it. This is a question we've asked. We've done this survey now. Uh, I, I think the last time we counted, we were a little more than 15,000 people we've asked the question to. Wide range, students, parents, mm-hmm. teachers, principals, industry, whatever, uh, industry leaders, higher ed, I mean, kind of runs the gamut. So the question I'll ask, and this is how we start a lot of our professional development for teachers, is... I'd like to ask you quickly, like, what should students learn in school? Like, when they graduate, what things would they know that are valuable? And I'll ask you to categorize them. You don't have to answer these, but just sort of a thing to frame the the idea. What content should they know? What skills and what habits? So what content, skills, and habits should kids have mastered? When we start there and ask the question, it reframes your question a little bit. So there is a, there's a, 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 an absolute reality, right? We're in Tennessee. We invented the idea, right? Tennessee was the first state to have like teacher s- scores uh, where we graded teacher effectiveness based on student test scores. Um, we continue to do this, right? Standards and high stakes testing are a thing. We, that's another podcast another day, but that's, <laughs> that is a reality, right? Yeah. It's, it's a non-negotiable, currently a non-negotiable reality. And certainly, I was a math teacher. I absolutely believe I have four daughters. I want them to learn their multiplication facts. I want them to know algebra. I I understand the value of literacy and math. Those things, we're not balking at that. What we realized was when we look at school, by and large, we put content up here on a really high pedestal. And then everything else falls not to two, three, four. It falls to like 100 on the list, right? And so when we ask the content, skills, and habits question, what we find is, no one argues that students should be developing collaboration skills or critical thinking skills or creative problem-solving skills. The students should be innovative, right? These are all transcendent skills that we know are transferable no matter what industry a student moves into, no matter what job they're preparing for. You know, we know the data is clear. They'll likely switch jobs at a higher rate than any generation before them. And they'll likely use technology that hasn't been invented yet. So knowing you're preparing kids for a dynamic world and knowing they carry more content in their pocket than anyone could possibly know, it lays the groundwork for rethinking, in many ways, the goal of school. Uh, we're not positioned, we're, we're a local nonprofit, we're not positioned to redefine the goal of school. Right? We don't have that authority, we can't, we can't change some of the structures that are in place currently. So what we did was say, okay, content matters, but it doesn't have to be number one. What if content was 1B and 1A was these, these essential skills, these durable skills? So with that sort of baseline, we built out all of the student experience through the lens where we regularly ask teachers questions like, who did the critical thinking in this project? Where was collaboration evident? How do you know effective collaboration was happening? What subdomain of collaboration were you thinking about? Did you evaluate or coach students on collaboration through the lens of peer accountability or personality diversity or diverse lived experiences? So we, we really drilled in deeply on those essential skills. So that knowing that is important because like what kids actually do in the labs is they engage in big projects. It's either through a design challenge schema. Here's a big project that's meaning your big question that's meaningful. Can you build a solution to it? Build something that matters to you. Or it's through a PBL construct, whether that's project or problem based is neither here nor there. But it's something with PBL, we attach standards to it. So there's some academic standards attached to it. 
but there's still this idea of kind of an open-ended challenge that kids have to create a solution for. Because we're so focused on those essential skills, what we do is what, we, what we've realized is that Fab Labs, access to a Fab Lab, gives students the ability to create functional solutions to real problems. They, when they can take an idea from their head and bring that idea to reality, they're intrinsically motivated to, they care about the product, right? That's my product. I want it to work. I, I care about how it works. So we don't have to assess that and we don't coach around that. What we're assessing are, how did you document and demonstrate your development of a specific essential skill that we're going to pay attention to in this project? What that's done for us is opened up a number of um, things for students where now when we give them a, a project, so it, it, a tangible example, we have a, a school that partners with a local art museum. They go in, it's a nine-week project. They go in and visit the museum um, for the launch. The museum lets them, the kids walk through and see the different pieces of art. Um, and the challenge is, over the next nine weeks, pick one piece of art and create your interpretation of it, making it interactive and using digital fabrication tools. I love it. Um, That's perfect. Yeah. So they, they package all of their academic learning through that, through that project over, that, over the course of that quarter. And at the end, the students present back to the museum, here's our art, why, you know, what our interpretation was, why we created it the way it was. Is the quality of all the art that's produced great? Well, that's always subjective, number one. But you know, objectively, I would say, no, of course it's not, you know, it's not all amazing. You do get some amazing pieces. But what we do is we're really focused on not celebrating amazing products. We want to always celebrate amazing process, right? What did, what did the kids do to get there? And, and how did they get there, right? Did they learn through failure? Did they iterate? How, did they, how many designs did they work through? What feedback did they get? Was this human-centered? All these sort of transcendent questions. What that does over time is that that helps students develop this sense that, like, the game of school historically, and and in most of you know many of our schools locally and across the country, the game of school is: can I hear from you, the teacher, and then when you ask, can I tell back what you said? And as long as I'm good at that, I'm considered a good student. And we're really trying to leverage the labs to say. Like we need to develop the ability to learn new things quickly. New things might be new content. It might also be new technology. It might be new ways to interact with people who are different from me. But that ability to learn new things quickly and then apply those those skills in a given context is profound. And for us, the having labs and schools has been I wouldn't say a silver bullet, but a compelling mechanism mm-hmm. to start positioning kids to do that. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And one of the things that I think is super intriguing and certainly one of the things that I see repeatedly when I think about our own experiences um, um, here at the Innovation Lab is the fact that, um, you know, the students learn so much through the process. And that sort of really gets me to my next question is, the, the learning that takes place, it's incredibly diverse, right? So from the moment, you know, you, you send the kids to the art museum, the challenge has been launched, right? To the point that they get to whatever that end piece is. The, the number of opportunities that where learning was actively happening, it's in many cases, can be pretty epic. Um, you know, I talked with a, a teacher once who was really, really struggling with, well, how do I fit these ideas in with what I'm already doing? And of course, you know, we've as as you know, folks working in this space, we've heard. Yeah, I know you've heard this as well, right? Um, over the years, and and one of my responses is always, well, you, this is not in addition to. It's in it's in place 
of, right? It's enhancing what you're doing. And you have an opportunity to recognize that your kids may well cover if we want to go back to standards, which we don't always, but just for the sake of this example, but if you want to cover X number of standards in the course of the semester, don't be surprised that if in the course of a project, your students can actually at least touch on all of them, right? Which gets me to my question then, because the the amount of learning um, that takes place in that engaged and applied environment is incredible. It is very, very diverse, and it will be slightly different for each learner right? Um, The skills they acquired, they attained, the skills that they use to help them with their solutions are not going to be the same from one learner to the next. So how do you gather and think about the collective set of artifacts and opportunity and experience that students have through that type of learning that becomes then transportable for them later? Because I, you know, it's in the moment, it's awesome. But I'm honestly, and here's where I think the industry partnership pieces and all this come in. Industry is interested in how that translates back into the career side of the work and energy that those various industry partners are sort of engaged in. So I think the bigger question for all of us is, you know, We don't want a student's experience K-12 to end in K-12, that that be a thing that's one and done. I, I, I check a box. That is opportunity lost. How do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, oh, that, that's heavy. And um, <laughs> I, was, I was listening to other episodes of Learning Unboxed, and um, I heard you talk about previously like um, the idea that school needs some disrupting and rethinking because the, the model is very much factory uh, based, right? It's, it's producing kids for a world that no longer exists in, in many ways, like the structure of it is. Um, so to, to that end, uh, sort of two responses to that. One is on the industry side, we do a lot with industry partners. Um, I mean, a, a lot with a wide range from small mom and pops to large corporations and multinational corporations like Volkswagen. What we hear consistently at every level is... The, the industry partners expect to have to train. They're, they're largely using proprietary systems. They have to train their employees within, on their systems and their style and their whatever they're doing, right? What they, what they can't afford to do but feel burdened with is training on these basic skills, right? These essential skills. We regularly hear, if I can get kids that can show up, that can have initiative, that are resilient, that will work independently, that can work collaboratively, right? we can teach them our systems but we, we're having a hard time finding employees who can do those things. So that focus on essential skills has been reinforced and has been valued. And when we do things like what we do with the art museum, we do that with a number of partners where we ask partners just for an hour at the beginning to pitch the project, think of a project that's meaningful to you. And at the end to give feedback to students, they present solutions. What we're not asking for, we coach our teachers and principals heavily on, we're, we don't go in asking for money and we don't go in asking for lectures. Right, money closes the door, and frankly, teachers are a lot better at lecturing than business people by and large, especially the kids. Um, so we, what what happens is there's a hook for the business, and there's a level of authenticity that's a hook for the kids. So you, you've really taken care of what the like the traditional anticipatory set is almost baked into the model. Um, so the documentation becomes the next step. So we, we've just launched this locally. A lot of the documentation for us over the last seven or eight years has been built into rubrics we use for PBL or design challenges. So those rubrics are very strategically intentionally written. Um, in a PBL, the short version of this is, uh, uh, let's say a student would get a uh, test grade in the grade book at the end of a unit, right? 
in the PBL with a PBL unit, they would still get a test grade that's associated with the content. You know, do I know how to solve a two-step equation or factor polynomials? You can tell I taught math. Um, <laughs> one of those math. All guys. of my examples come from algebra <laughs> one. Yeah, um, <laughs> that that that's there mm-hmm. in those in those units when we have access to the labs and we're building these sort of maker PBL units. We we have an equally weighted. So if they got a test grade for content, they're also going to get a test grade for how they documented and demonstrated proficiency around a particular essential skill. And, and this was such a profound move for us in our community. We just weren't seeing this anywhere. That getting started, it was arbitrary. We would just tell the teachers, arbitrarily pick an essential skill. So say collaboration through the lens of peer accountability. So while you build out your solution, while you learn the content, while you master the content, you also have the burden as a student of documenting how are you holding your team accountable? Did you put constructs in place before you hit dilemmas? Did you have interventions that your team agreed to? Did you sign a contract? What did that look like? Right. And so with those pieces in place, we now had documentation for the teachers to say, okay, I can see how you navigated this. This, this meets, and we, of course, the rubric could outline, this is a level of proficiency. This is what advanced proficient work looks like from a skill standpoint, you know, essential skill standpoint or soft skill standpoint, similar to how it would look with content. Well, we built on that. And in January, we released an app in beta form that we've been building with Jeff McClellan and the Start Soul team. Um, the app's called Fabfolio. We've been piloting it locally. We're getting really interesting data. And, and what it's starting to do for us is give us quantifiable, hard evidence that aligns with the narrative we've been able to tell for the last decade. We've been seeing these interesting case studies. Now we're building a body of evidence. And you know, what's really interesting there, it's... Um, at this point, industry partners are interested, but in that app, we're tracking two domains. We're tracking technical proficiency, so we built it around Fab Labs, so technical skills and essential skills. And we still get most of our industry partners are mostly interested in the essential skill development for students. And so they're like, oh, yeah, that's cute. You could use a 3D printer. I'm right. much more interested in how you work productively in a team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I totally understand that. You know, like you talk to so many industry folks, and that's the thing I hear over and over again, right? We can teach you how to do the thing that we do, but it's much, much harder to teach you how to be on the team, to communicate, to take your pick, right? Um, and we know that that students can do those things and do them really well. They just need to practice in, in a variety of opportunities um, and scenarios in structured and unstructured ways. Um, so I, I really, that is actually one of the things that I love about the work that you're doing and the fact that um, as an organization, you said, we, we can and should tackle this. There's not a Thing out there to help us do this. But if we could figure it out, imagine what we could learn about ourselves, right? The data side, I'm a right. total data geek and I will own that. You know, you're, you're a math guy. I'm, <laughs> I'm a total data geek um, in the sense that it gives us um, it gives us so many intriguing opportunities to ask questions. And ultimately, what comes from being able to take a look sort of behind the curtain, if you will, of the incredible opportunities and experiences that students are having is it helps us understand where we're either doing a great job, where we're not doing such a great job. But more importantly, as that data set grows more and more, it gives us an opportunity to recognize there, there are questions and, and data out there around things we haven't even considered before. And what do we do with that? Yeah. So I love it. If I could give you a, a, mm-hmm. a quick story of yeah. like sort of an illustration from our end, because um, I, I think it's 
for me, it's a lot of the driver now mm-hmm. as we're seeing mm-hmm. Fabfolio, which Fabfolio is a student portfolio and a micro-credentialing app. It, it does right. both simultaneously. Yeah, so we're doing together. a lot of yeah, micro-credentialing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen behind that curtain. So, and I love that curtain. Yeah, yeah. So um, so back when we when we first started the Volkswagen work, the eLab work, um, this was 2017, 2018, um, just to give some perspective. Um, we had a one of the labs. Um, we, we run multiple models, implementation models in schools and how the labs fit the student's schedule. Uh, so this was at a school that had an open model, meaning the lab was not scheduled at all. But the teacher in the lab worked as essentially a PBL coach who would work with classroom teachers, content teachers to build up PBL units and then schedule when do you need to come to the lab to have access to the tools and when do you not need to be here. Uh, so she manages really, it's a really incredible thing to just watch just the logistics of it work. Had a U.S. history teacher at the school, no previous experience in digital fabrication or fab labs. He um, had always, you know, for several years, had done this unit at the end of the year when you're sort of out of testing, you just finished testing, got two weeks to burn um, before the semester ends. He would make his students watch Forrest Gump and teaching about civil rights, he would frame for them, you're going to watch Forrest Gump. It's, you know, the, the story is largely Forrest Gump working through different things that happened, happened during, you know, events that happened during the civil rights era. He would pitch to them and say, you're, you're one of the executive producers and you've left scenes that you had to cut from the movie that are on the floor. So it used to be a writing assignment only. Pick a scene that the editor cut, you know, an event that would have happened that Forrest could have been at. Write about why did you have to cut that and what was the scene and what was compelling, but why did it get cut for a different scene in its place? When they had a fab lab, he got together with the teacher and said, this is what I do. Could we bend this to, to take advantage of access to the tools? What they did was say, okay, same prompt, but now you're going to not just write, but you're expected to produce an artifact. And he framed it to say when Forrest is sitting on the bench with his box of chocolates, it was metaphorical. There's not actually chocolate in the box. It's tokens that he had collected. There's a ping pong ball. It's, it's things he had collected that, that sort of represented his memories um, as he's telling all these stories. So he told them, you've got to produce. What's the, what's the thing that you're going to produce? Two young ladies, they did this in pairs, two young ladies, sophomores in high school, um, created, they decided that, they said um, that Forrest Gump gave up his seat to Rosa Parks. And so they made a replica bus token that they 3D printed. This was not high-level digital fabrication. This is pretty rudimentary use of a 3D printer. But in that exact, in that, that specific example, these two young ladies had an epiphany. Like they realized in the midst of this project, to your point about the breadth of learning, they went, oh, I, I actually like doing this. I'm good at it. They didn't see themselves in the lab previously. It wasn't their spot. Um, as they developed that sense of identity, they started looking for more ways to get involved in the lab. How do I take my next project there? What could I do? What else could I do? Both of them are now sophomores, I'm sorry, juniors, um, accepted in the mechanical engi- engineering program at U- University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Yay! Um, it changed their like yeah. sense of self, right? Like They would have never otherwise been able to have such rich experience. What we missed, it's a cool story. It's, it's an awesome story. Had we had Fabfolio in place then, we would have a formal way for us to document the process. So what we don't know is like, when did that light bulb turn on? And what elements happened? We're, now with Fabfolio, I think we're able to capture a lot more strategically what's going through the kid's mind as they're engaged in that kind of project. So yes, we certainly want to continue driving at giving students who may not see themselves in this world. I mean, talk about moving the needle in STEM fields. That's profound enough. But being able to have those insights, the data, I think we get excited about because it, it helps us refine the model. It shows us what we don't know. 
and helps us continue. I mean, we recognize we're just on the tip of the spear here. Like we're building a thing that we don't, we don't even know what we're building exactly. So getting some of this data, I think provides really um, compelling insights that help will help us refine the model. And as it begins to scale across the country, um, you know, we're starting to get interest in other communities around the United States, around the world. Having data to lean into, I think, will help help give us more help us make more informed choices. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I I love that. I think it's a perfect moment, you know, as we sort of wrap the conversation because what what really gets my heart bumping as I hear you telling this story in all honesty is there there that that moment of epiphany, right? It was life changing, but more importantly, more importantly, and this is me as putting my anthropology hat on. Um, most of my listeners know I'm an anthropologist, which is why I love data. I, lo- I love the stuff, right, that we can dig through to figure out, you know, the human story, the narrative of experience. Um, but that was about a shift in someone's identity. Suddenly, it was so incredibly powerful for these young women that literally their trajectory changed because they grabbed a thing in that experience that said, I can, I can, I should, I will, it's possible for me. And the intriguing part of all of that, and I I love the, the narratives around trying to understand how does human identity really sort of coalesce. And so thank you, Michael, very much, both for sharing your time with us today and the incredible work that you're doing. I, I, we could have numerous episodes, just you and I chatting because it's been fabulous. Um, but I thank you very much for the work that you're doing and for, for sharing um, all of that with us. Um, we will certainly post, um, when we release the episode for folks, um, links um, and information. I hope, 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 if you heard something today that just gets you so incredibly inspired, you're just like, I want to be part of that, um, that you will reach out to Michael. He's an amazing guy and that what the work that they're doing there is um, incredible and it, they are in the process of sharing. So um, be part of that journey. Thank you, Michael, very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.